I'm Sharon Brett Kelly, and today on The Detail, I'm sitting on the edge of some mudflats near Mangere in Auckland, and I'm here because I'm looking for godwits, these special birds that have flown all the way from Alaska. Uh, They hold the record for the birds that fly the furthest non-stop. So today I'm talking to Keith Woodley. He's the resident manager at Miranda Shorebirds, and he's followed these birds all over the world. Yeah, g'day. Hi there. Oh, you're at home, are you? Yes, or I you're... am. Yeah. Well, it's sort of home, office. It's all one it's all one here. Is it? All the same. Yeah. yeah. Do you actually live at Miranda? I do. I live on the... On the yeah, I live at the Shorebird Centre. Oh, perfect. Someone has, someone has to. <laughs> and, well, if it's your passion, you're kind of... You're living the dream, really, aren't you? Well, yes. Yeah, it's been pretty good this past, uh, well, 28 years now. Is it 28 years? Yes. And quite a lot has happened in that time. Well, let's talk about that. But first of all, how's your day been today? Because I hear that you were expecting a bird that you've been tracking. Uh, no, I didn't get out there today. Um, the bird that we expected, well, was it, we, it was predicted to arrive yesterday. Um, but it dropped down at Rangaunu Harbour in the far north and it's still up there. Oh. So it, it's, it's probably having a, a bit of a um, bit of a feed and getting you know it'll it'll come back here eventually. But um, Rangaunu after that long flight was probably just too tempting, rather than carrying on. Whereas we know other birds, including the bird that arrived here Sunday morning, did actually come directly here without stopping. From Alaska. So, from Alaska. Yeah. Exactly yeah. where in Alaska? Um, well, these birds breed all the way from Western Alaska, from the, the Gulf of Alaska up into the North Slope. So there's about a thousand kilometre, you know, north to south breeding range for these guys. But the main departure point is at the southwest coast of the YK, the Yukon Kaskawin Delta. That's the, the big chunk that sort of juts out immediately above the peninsula and the Aleutians. And on the southwest corner, there's a huge area of mudflats that are super rich. And some of the richest mud flats in the world, they, they say. And that allows these birds to get the condition they need to do 12,000-plus kilometres. When you say super rich, what's in those mud flats? Well, there's plenty of the, uh, the bivalves and the worms. But down here, the gobbets eat mainly marine worms. Whatever they're eating up there, there must be plenty of it because it allows these birds to get super fat, which they have to do before they set off. Because, you know, ahead of them is the entire Pacific. And they flap their wings the whole time? Powered flight the whole way. They, they will get assistance from time to time, depending on, you know, there'll, there'll be wind conditions at certain times that will suit them. You know, big tailwinds and air pocket, they'll get, be up there. They won't have to work quite so hard, but that's balanced by the fact they, they've got to deal with whatever weather they find, and, and sometimes they're just going to have to beat strongly into winds and, and just carry on gumming. Well, that's so interesting because you've got some of these birds tagged. So mm-hmm. do they survive big storms, things like that? Um, well, that's an interesting question because these birds have had to negotiate these storms for, for, for generations and they, they obviously they are fairly, fairly resilient. And what the tracking is showing us, you, you can follow the track and look at the weather conditions almost in real time. And you can see that where birds are faced with big systems involving a lot of strong headwinds, they seem to be able to make decisions based on those, those, those elements they find and, and have, a, have a strategy for adjusting. Now, we also know that if, if birds are sort of steadily pushed off course 
by a series of wind patterns um, over a period of time, there comes a time when the bird is able to actually make a correction in its in its flight path and and correct and and, and head for where it was going originally. So they've got they've got some pretty amazing skills to be able to negotiate these vast areas and in, in all in all conditions. So are you saying if they get blown off course by strong winds? they can redirect themselves back yeah. onto the flight path. So last year, a number of birds were coming down here and they struck um, a lot of easterly systems, which pushed them to the west of where they were coming. So if they're coming directly towards New Zealand, a lot of these birds will, pass, will push westward towards Vanuatu, the Solomons, and, and ultimately Australia. But some of those birds, when the conditions were, 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 were OK and suitable for them, were able to make a correction and, and change course and head to where they're going. Um, there's another case of a bird which was coming to Pekurukuru, and it came down the Tasman, crossed the, the coast somewhere near Carpia, and made a beeline for the Firth of Thames. So that bird <laughs> knew where it was and where it was going. <laughs> How high do they fly? That tends to vary. We've got records of birds at sea level. But um, up to two, two or 3,000 metres was the consensus. When I was working on my Godbert's book a few years ago, that seemed to be the consensus where you got the most efficiencies for fuel use and, and so forth. But recent work the Dutch have been doing on black-tailed Godwits and other species of Godwit have had birds at 6,000 metres. And given what these birds do and how they keep surprising us, um, it's by no means impossible that our birds might be flying at those sort of altitudes as well. So hopefully... The next stage will be get some sort of altitude trackers on them, and that might answer that question. I haven't asked you about how you actually do the tagging. Uh, well, we, we catch birds here. There's, there's two methods of catching them. Either you, at night you can use mist nets where the bird flies into the net at night, um, or by day we use what we call cannon nets. So the idea is to set a net on the near the high tide roost where the birds have been roosting, and if they follow the script, they'll come and sit in front of the net and fire the net over them and catch them, and you know, we wish it was that simple all the time. You're talking about the one that made the beeline for Miranda. Would that have been the place that it had flown out of? Yes. These birds, these godwits, once they're adults, they're very, very sight faithful. And that's been one of the um, advantages in in trying to study them. There's a population at Foxton Beach, which has been a small population, which would be very well studied. And a lot of what we know has come from that population. Now, birds that were colour banded and marked at Foxton have been coming back to Foxton for quite some years, individual birds. And we know that birds come back to the Firth. So these birds are very sight faithful as adults. And they'll always try and come back to that, that one place. As young birds, the young birds arrive in New Zealand with only a few months old. And we had uh, there's three of them here, at least three of them here at the Firth at the moment. Three juvenile godlets that are less than four months old. They've already crossed the Pacific, they are here. And what the youngsters seem to do, they tend to wander around the country for quite some time. And presumably they settle on a place. And once they settle on a place, they seem to become faithful to that place as, a, as an adult. And so, and so they'll keep on coming back to that same place. So would they be coming the first time that they cross over from Alaska? Would they be coming to the resting place that their parents are from? That's, uh, that's unknown at this stage. So... The, the, the three birds that we saw here in the last couple of days, clearly they've arrived in flocks of adults because the adults are still arriving. Um, but later on in October, we get more juveniles arriving and there's a strong suspicion that some of those juveniles may be in flocks comprised entirely of juveniles. 
So that's yet to be confirmed, but the evidence seems to suggest that's maybe maybe happening, which suggests that these young birds are hatched programmed to fly in a certain direction. Wow. Right, they've never done that flight before. They're not flying with adults who've done the flight before. Not necessarily. So, so you know, as I say, we, we hope to be able to sort of get more information on this, but the, the suspicion is that there are young birds that come here without adults. The incoming tide is driving massive flocks of bar-tailed godwits towards the shoreline. For the birders, it's a David Attenborough moment. Looking down on this incredible sight. Noisily swooping, rising, falling. You're hearing a lot of chatter out there. A lot of gossip going on out there. That's Woodley in a TVNZ Sunday documentary about a trip to North Korea to find the Godwits in 2018. He was one of three birders from Miranda and the first foreigners at that spot. The Godwits are now literally right on top of us. I've seen identifiable birds and just the aerial display they put on for us. That's a rarity to, to be able to be so close to them. I rate this place a 10. A 10? A 10. The Miranda team's expectations... So many birds. Such a great place. ..have been blown out of the water. Now they're all awake. Whoa. And they're all up. Whoa. Here they go. They link us to the most strangest... to the strangest places. These godwits that leave New Zealand, they need to stop and refuel on the way in East Asia, so the, the mudflats, the Yellow Sea, the coast of China and the Korean Peninsula, that's where they find the food for their, for their refuelling stop. And a lot of habitat's been lost in China and in South Korea. Um, and habitat is being lost in North Korea, but there's still a lot of habitat there. So we found good habitat and a lot of birds. So all of those three countries are important for these guys. When was the last time you were in North Korea? Uh, in April 2019. We were due to go back in April last year, but um, events conspired against us. I know. And, and not this year? No, 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 no way, and and not next year either. We don't know if and when we'll we'll get back, but it's going to take uh, quite a while. Does that worry you that you can't get back over a number of years to see how things are there? Well, yes and no. Um, the the main concern over the years for us has been China. We've been uh, we've had a partnership with the reserve in China where a lot of our government stopped to refuel. Um, we've been involved with that reserve since two thousand and four. And over that time, a lot of habitat has been lost in China. And that's, you know, so all around the LSC, habitat has been lost. To but development. In to development, you know, sort of land claims and aquaculture and so forth. But in recent years, the Chinese government has started to seriously protect some of their, their, their coastal wetlands. There are, there are, you know, they've, they've gone for World Heritage listing for some of the LSC sites. And so there's signs, without being over-optimistic, there are signs for cautious optimism. Uh, that if these sort of things are followed through over a period of time, uh, it may be enough to halt the decline of some of these shorebird populations. Um, We've we just got to hope that that's the case. If there's a, not a good, healthy place for them to land, do they die? Eventually. So a bird stopping to refuel needs to find sufficient you know, food to actually out to double its weight again to replace all the, the fuel that's lost on the flight. And it's got a certain period of time to do that because the breeding season in the Arctic is very brief. It's got to get up there at a certain time to go through that brief season. So if a bird has to struggle to find all the food it needs over a greater time, it starts getting behind in its schedule. So it's going to leave the, the stopover site and not in the condition it needs to be. 
They need to be in good condition when they arrive on the breeding grounds because the food may not be available for smoke. And so there's a, a, a sort of a cascade effect that if, if a bird is held up on migration, it may have implications further into its breeding cycle. So, yes, these birds need these stopover sites to be good and full of food in the time available that they've got to, to exploit it. So what is the current state of, well, is it the bar-tailed godwits that you study in particular or in, or different? That's, yeah, that, for us, that's a flagship species. That's the main shorebird that comes to New Zealand, um, followed by the red knot. But the, the bar-tailed godwit, the kuaka, is our major one. Our population, the Alaskan godlets, has essentially halved in the last 20, 30 years. So the time I've been at the Kurukuru Miranda, the birds we get on the Firth is essentially halved in that time. Yeah. What's the status? I think it was threatened. Yeah, so up until a few years ago, the Bartel goblet was classed under the dock threat racking system as a, a migrant. But a few years ago, that was changed, along with the red knot, that was changed to native a native bird, which means it, it qualifies for conservation funding, but basically that's one of the criteria. Um, and it was considered because these birds spend six months of the year here in New Zealand, they're almost you know, native birds. Mm. So they spend less than a couple of months of, a bit more in, in the Arctic breeding, and they spend six months here, and the rest of the time they spend migrating. So they deserve to be called New Zealanders. Well, you could say that. Um, the, the Americans might have a view on that, given the fact that they all, they all hatch in Alaska. Dual citizenship, then. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> or, or triple, triple citizenship. That's right. Want to be China and Korea in. That's right. Um, why are they called godwits? Well, I, I advanced a theory to people who will believe me that it was named after a vicar with a sense of humour, but um, I don't always get far with that. Um, <laughs> The closest I've come, there's some thought about the call of it. Um, there was a call I remember hearing on the tundra that sounded a bit like that. Um, there's also a, a word in old English called god, god wit, god wheat, meaning good fare, good good food. So, so they were taken as, as food. Right, and kuaka, is that like a direct translation of god wit? No, but the, 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 the kuaka is, I think this, you can see, here's something in the call of, of the bird here. You can hear something which I, I can, you know, I, I think would, would suggest itself to something like kuaka, part of the call. So, Keith, back 28 years ago when you started as a birder, was that how you'd describe yourself? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. What did you know then about Godwitz? Me personally, I knew very little. I was I was very green. I, I was I became interested in birds in the late eighties, early nineties. So I was sort of you know finding myself finding my way through there. But since arriving here, um, I've learned a lot. But more importantly, since the early nineties, our knowledge of the godwit population has increased almost exponentially. So through the nineties, birds were caught here and banded and flagged, and over time, some of those records came back. So we started to build up a, a picture of the flyaway, the, the route these birds were taking on their migrations. And then we got the famous story of E7 in 2007. Oh, what's that um, story? That's the story of the, the bird with a the female bird with an implanted transmitter. So this bird was tracked from here to the Yellow Sea nonstop, from the Yellow Sea to Alaska nonstop, and back to New Zealand nonstop. A lot of people have been suggesting this was possible. So I know a guy called Bob Gill, who's been working with these birds in Alaska for 30 years, he was driving this theory. And so it was great confirmation of his idea that, that this bird can actually do the Pacific in one, 
one non-stop flight. And I, I remember the, the time when she set off from Alaska, and these implanted transmitters had a battery. And, of course, a battery is finite. It, go, it, it fades after a while. And as she was coming south, the signals were getting weaker. And so the further south she came, the weaker the signals became. We began to doubt whether, in fact, she would get here with the transmitter still functioning. She might still get here, but the transmitter might have failed by then. But the transmitter kept going until just after she landed back here, before it faded. That, that was that was a, a, a nice little piece of that story. You know, you couldn't make this up. No. And since then, the study population at Foxton has given us information on individual birds, their, their, their whole annual cycle over a 10-, 11-year period. Now our knowledge is just voluminous, and yet they still keep surprising us. The latest surprise is the distance of their non-stop flights. They thought the longest was 12,200 kilometres. But just last week, a new record. A Godwit flew from the Arctic to New South Wales, covering more than 13,000 k's. So we thought 12,000 was a limit for these birds' capacity. This guy's done an extra thousand on top of that. So, you know, they just keep surprising us. What are you still trying to find out about them? Well, there's still some, some things to learn about the migration routes. So the, the beauty of this tracking project at the moment is for the first time, these little trackers are designed to work for at least three years, and hopefully some of them will keep doing that. So already we're starting to get the tracks of individual birds over two consecutive migration seasons. That's never been done with these guys before. So that's, that's throwing a lot of light on, for instance, how they manage wind system, how they manage weather, you know, how they make decisions and so forth. The individual birds, do they have personalities that kind of draw you to them? Uh, it's not as individuals that I'm, I'm aware of. Well, you do see some interactions between birds, but one of the um, astonishing things for me was when I spent time camped with nesting goblets in 2008 in Alaska, um, I'd been here for a few years. I got to know these birds, and they were shy, retiring birds, the sort of brown birds sort of walking around in the mud, sticking their bills in the mud, coming out all muddy. I mean, it wasn't, didn't seem to be much to recommend them when you just look at, it, look at them in those terms. Um, but I found, to my amazement, up on the breeding grounds, the male godwit goes through a personality change. He's no longer shy and retiring. He's coloured up in his finest breeding plumage. He'll fly around over the tundra, maybe a square kilometre circuit, calling loudly for over an hour. And it is loud. It's a very loud call. And he's basically trying to impress her down there. It's, it's, it's a mate selection thing. So this guy is loud. He's flamboyant. He's in your face. He's aggressive. He does these you know, battles with other birds. But then when it comes time to nest and incubate, they both, they both share incubation. This guy disappears completely into the tundra. He's totally camouflaged. He goes completely silent. And you've got to be pretty good to, to find out where he is. So, you know, these changes I found quite extraordinary. Mm. Do you have a, any special memories, you know, for over that 28 years? Oh, there's a lot of them. But I think the... I, I think the, the, I regard my time in Alaska during the breeding season up there as the greatest privilege... That was just an extraordinary experience, watching, arriving in a snowbound landscape, being in the landscape for about 10 days, first birds arrive, and watching springtime just roll rapidly across the tundra. And suddenly it was full of birds of all sorts, you know, cranes and swans and sparrow-sized birds and godwits, all going for it. It was just an extraordinary experience. If the numbers have depleted by so much, 
What's, what's your feeling about what's going to happen to them? Well, if we look at something like climate change, that alone is going to impact these birds at every point of their annual compass. Where you've got sea level rise and hard edges, uh, you're going to start losing areas of mudflats. But that certainly it would be the case in the Yellow Sea with a lot of hard edges, also here to a certain extent. On the tundra, where you've got changes to the climate, you've got changes to the water table, changes to vegetation. More importantly, warming temperatures on the tundra bring forward the insect emergence, which is the main food source for these, these birds and their chicks. That's happening earlier on the tundra now than it was, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and if birds ideally want to time their hatching of their chicks for that peak insect emergence, because these, these shorebirds don't feed their chicks. The chicks emerge and within a day or so, those chicks are finding their own food. Mm. So that there needs to be abundant food. And those chicks need to develop very quickly because it's a brief breeding season. And so if that insect emergence happening earlier, birds need to be able to adjust their timing. And birds that are breeding in the north, you know, wintering in the northern hemisphere, not going as far south, there's evidence that they are already starting to adjust their timing and they're starting to arrive earlier and so forth. But these birds like Godwits, they're in another hemisphere and they're being guided by diurnal cues, daylight cues and that sort of thing. Um, and so for them to adapt to these changes is going to be even more difficult. But the interesting thing is that Godwits have been leaving New Zealand on average half a day earlier over the last few years. And so you would think, okay, that's an adapt adaptation to that change on the tundra. But in actual fact, they're spending longer in the Yellow Sea. Mm. They're, not, they're not arriving on the tundra any earlier. They're spending longer in the Yellow Sea, suggesting it's more an adaptation to the diminishing food sources at the stopover site in the Yellow Sea. So there's an example of how they can adapt gradually but when they still get up to, to Alaska, the food source is going to be still too late. So and whether they can adapt quickly enough remains to be seen. In Nelson, they ring the church bells when the Godwits land at Motueka Sandspit. But Woodley says Auckland is Godwits central and should be celebrating that. If you look at it from a perspective of Godwits, between the Firth of Thames, the Manukau Harbour and the Kuiper Harbour, and to a lesser extent the Waitemata Harbour, all of those have got flocks of godwits. Possibly 50% or more of all New Zealand godwits are in the Auckland region. And so if each spring, when the godwits arrive back, Auckland was to consider having some sort of festival, some sort of celebration, something, it would be truly the godwit capital. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded by NZ On Air and is a joint newsroom RNZ production. You can download us free to your mobile phone every day on any podcast platform. Alexia Russell produced this episode. Jeremy Ansell engineered it. And thanks to Keith Woodley. And here's one more incredible fact about the Godwit. One final thing I should mention is the longevity I saw a bird two days ago that had a leg flag with a three-letter code on it. And according to the banding record, that bird is at least 20 years old. Gosh, and really? I saw it two years ago. And we have a record of a bird. Our, I think our oldest bird in New Zealand we know of is 28 years. And so there's another thing. Not only are these birds doing these you know, humongous migrations, but they, they can live quite a long time. <laughs>